0: Jesus of Nazareth was flat out gone. When Jesus ascended into heaven 40 days after his first post resurrection appearance, he left nothing behind, not a trace. When the bewildered disciples rotated their craning necks and lowered their wide eyes and shuffled their feet down the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem. They had absolutely nothing. That was a different day than ours, wasn't it? We talked about it last week and the resurrection. We think of the ascension just a little while longer. There were no photographs or video recordings of Jesus. It amazes me these days there's somebody who rises to prominence and they find some old footage of that individual as if somebody knew they were going to be famous. I don't think there's one frame of videotape of my life <laughs> of early days. And I guess that uh, indicates they'll never be famous, but I don't know. But it's just amazing. We have footage of almost everybody. We can go back into the uh, Second World War and the like and see video footage of people, but there's none of Jesus. Not even a photograph. Think about it. There were no tape recordings of any of his sermons. Jesus wrote no books. He left behind no letters, no artwork. There was no last will and testament. There was absolutely nothing. Somebody must have possessed something that he had made as a woodworker, we would assume. Perhaps somebody had the mat in which he slept or a bowl from which he ate. But Jesus left nothing of substance behind. He was gone without a trace. God knew when it was the right time to send his son and I think some of that is is purposeful on the part of God. All of it is, of course, but Jesus left nothing substantial behind. What did he leave behind? He left behind memories. Memories of his words and deeds which burned with bitter resentment in the hearts of his detractors. And burned with loyal love in the hearts of his followers and still do and will throughout all eternity. As time passed, those disciples began to realize that Jesus was not coming back this week. Or in a week or two. Or in a month or two. And as the years passed, some of those disciples began to record their memories of Jesus began to write them down. He left nothing behind but those memories, and they began to write them down in words. Think about this. That is all that links us to Jesus, our words. These words that the disciples recorded are our only tangible, physical link to Christ. No visual images, no words from his own pen, no work of art that he left behind, but we have these God breathed words. And through these words, we too can see Jesus Christ. We embark today on a journey through the Gospel of Luke. We'll not turn there now. Matter of fact, I'd like you to make your way to Psalm 115, if you will, first. We're embarking (coughs) today on a journey through the Gospel of Luke, who more fully than any other writer of Scripture reveals to us Jesus the man. It's a daunting task to enter into a new book and know that you've got to carry it through to the end. And it led me to prayer this week in a unique way. And as I contemplated this journey with you, Psalm 115 came to mind, because you have to get yourself fired up with some motivation to go through a book, and particularly one this lengthy. And I thought of Psalm 115, and I'd like to walk you through this as an introduction to our series through the book of Luke and the study of the life of Christ. Why study the Gospel of Luke? This is as good an answer as any, and it drives us. Us forward, Psalm one fifteen, and verse one. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. <clears throat> There's the heading of the psalm, the major theme, the glory of God, His love and faithfulness. Now, notice the response on the part of those who observe Israel, verse two. Why do the nations say, "Where is their God"? What are the nations saying to the Israelites? These people don't have any idols. You ask us where our God is, we point you to a statue and say, there's His representation. There's the idol we fall down to. Where's the God of the Israelites? No idols. Where is their God? Here's the answer that Israel gives in verse 3, and that resonates with the heart of anyone who knows God. Verse 3, our God is in heaven. He doesn't stand on this earth In an image of metal or wood, our God resides in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. The idols have to be moored to the earth or to the pedestal so they don't topple over. They cannot walk away. They cannot do anything. Our God does whatever He pleases. He is the living God, the true God, the creator of the ends of the earth, He is God in heaven. But in contrast, verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but cannot speak. Eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Now watch this, verse 8. Those who make them will be like them. That's the phrase that continued to run through my mind this week as I prepared to teach on the life of Jesus Christ. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust them. Mark this. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. We become like that which most attracts our attention, consumes our interests, and moves our affections. We become what we behold. This is why I want us as a church to invest ourselves in seeing Jesus. And in particular, seeing the portrait of Jesus that Luke paints for us. Where are your eyes fixed? What do you behold? What grabs your attention? Where are you looking? If we look at the idols of this world, we become like the idols of this world. I want us to look at Jesus and to look at this portrait that Luke paints. So I dedicated this series in prayer to God this week. However long it may take, however many times it may be interrupted, if I'm permitted to finish preaching through this book, my prayer is this. That I may unfold the truths of this book in such a manner that the glories of Jesus Christ are seen and felt with such conviction that it makes us hate sin and fills us with renewed love for God, which in turn ignites in us a renewed passion to broadcast the gospel of Jesus Christ in word and deed. I hope that we can put before us as an assembly, as we work together, you through your prayers and through your attention and your meditation and through the studies that God gives me the ability to put forward, that we can put Jesus Christ before our eyes and see him and be changed. Though oversimplified, we might say that Matthew reveals Jesus as the king. Mark shows him as the energetic servant of God. Luke shows us Jesus the man. So in the pattern of Luke's account, I want us to see the man. You remember what was said of the idols? Ears, but they cannot hear. Mouths, but they cannot speak. Feet, but they cannot walk. I want us to see Jesus, the living God on earth, I want us to see the beads of sweat on his brow, the gleam in his eye, the calluses on his feet. I want us to hear the ring of truth in his words, to feel the sting of his rebuke, the balm of his comfort, and the wonder of his forgiveness, hope, miraculous power, and selfless sacrifice. My aim is to unveil the man and for that vision to transform us into his likeness by pieces. And so we begin in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 and verse 1 <coughs> Luke chapter 1 and verse 1 many have undertaken Luke writes to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word therefore since i myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me (coughs) to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. As we start out on this journey, we have here obviously an introduction to the book, and I'd like to investigate at some length here this morning the background to this book of Luke, to lay some things down so that we will understand all that we read hopefully a little bit better and get headed down in the right path. Then I'd like to return to these verses and to go over them briefly as we close today. But first of all, let's ask about this author, Luke. Luke wrote this gospel. None of the synoptic writers claims to be the author of the book that bears his name. And By the way, when I use the word synoptic, It just means Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is something of a unique book, though it is considered a gospel. It tells of the life of Christ. It's not so concerned to trace out a long stretch of his life. So we refer to the synoptic gospels as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The early church tradition, however, unanimously supports the belief that Luke authored this book. And there is nothing that has come along the way, outside of a few people who like to make money writing articles, that would cause us to doubt that. Luke is the author of the book. I don't think there's any reason to question that at all. We know nothing of his origin or life before conversion. We may be fairly certain, however, that secondly, Luke was a Gentile convert. And he is the only Gentile to pen a biblical book. Tradition says that he was from Antioch of Syria and a God-fearer. We cannot establish those truths, but by God-fearer was meant uh, that he was a Gentile, but attended the synagogue, followed the Jewish faith, knew that God was true God, Jehovah God, but uh, was born a Gentile. We cannot be certain of this or that he lived in Antioch of Syria, but it is interesting that Luke emphasizes the god fears in the book of Acts, and I might jump in here to say, I'll talk often about the, Luke of, uh, the book of Acts, and that is because Luke wrote both of these books. They're both addressed to Theophilus. They're both written by Luke. So what Acts says is helpful to us in understanding the thinking of Luke in his gospel and vice versa. So there's a direct connection between these two books written to the same individual. But at any rate, Luke does indicate that he is very familiar with Jewish customs, idioms, and the like. He had come to know Jesus Christ, this author Luke, but he had never met him. But he knew people who had. And that leads to the third point, Luke was Paul's missionary companion. There are four sections in the book of Acts that use the word we. And though some have doubted this and written articles in, uh, seeking to debunk the idea, I think that it has been very well established through careful research that these sections use the word we in the sense that Luke was with Paul. Paul. Those sections are found, as you see here on the overhead, chapters 16, 20, 21, and 27. And when you pick them apart in the original language and you look at them within the context and you compare them with what Luke writes elsewhere, it is clear that Luke was with Paul. And you might ask, what is the big deal? Paul says that Luke was with him. But uh, sometimes that's what, what gets into the debate is those who like to tear apart the Gospels. But at any rate, he was a companion of Paul, was with Paul. Think of this, two years at the Caesarea prison with Paul. He was with him in his final imprisonment, according to 2 Timothy 4. Mysteriously, the book of Acts never discusses the execution of Paul and ends very abruptly, and we really do not know what happens to Luke. We find nothing more about him after these books are written. But perhaps the reason Luke traveled with Paul is, number four, that Luke was a physician. In Colossians 4 and verse 14, Paul refers to Luke as a dear friend and doctor. There is discussion again. There's discussion about everything when it comes to the Gospels, but some discussion as to whether he was really a physician as we understand it. But again, I don't see any compelling evidence to question The simple statement of Paul in Colossians 4.14. Luke was a well-trained man, and that is evidenced not only by the fact that he was a physician, which would have been rare in his day, but also by the fact of his use of Greek. And that leads to the next point. Luke was a skilled writer. The Gospel of Luke is renowned for its superior quality in Greek. Luke's use of vocabulary, his ability to vary styles and structure sentences, his use of impeccable uh, form has earned him and this work a place in ancient literature. It's even argued that what we're looking at here in the first four verses is really one long sentence, and many have acknowledged this to be the greatest sentence in Greek literature for its structure, its vocabulary, and and all of that. Now that misses us, obviously, and... Our English translation here does a, a fair job of butchering that uh, beauty from, at places, but it does make it very uh, understandable to us, and that is partly what we're after here. But he was a tremendous writer, along with any other skills that he may have, may have had. We really don't know all that much about Luke beyond this, but some things can be established. We know less about the recipient, Theophilus. Theophilus was also a Gentile, He's referred to here in Luke 1 and verse 3 as the most excellent, which indicates that Theophilus was a man of high esteem. We don't know why he was a man of high esteem, and this phrase cannot really tell us that. Whether he just had wealth or was a high official or something, we're not sure. But ironically, here's a man to whom one quarter of the New Testament is addressed, and we have no idea who he is. Some have suggested that he was Luke's literary patron, that is, that he would have supported Luke in the production of this book, we don't know. He was a Gentile, however, and we do know why Luke writes to him. This gospel gives little attention to Old Testament prophecies. My, my point is that it fits the idea that Theophilus was a Gentile. It doesn't, there's not a lot of emphasis on Old Testament prophecies or Old Testament quotations, such as you would find in Matthew. At times, Luke will give uh, to Hebrew words their Greek equivalent in the text. Jesus will never be referred to as rabbi, but always referred to as master. Further indicators that Luke is a uh, Gentile writing to a Gentile. Christ's genealogy is traced to Adam rather than to Abraham, which would make sense for Greek readers. Lenski proposes the intriguing possibility that Theophilus was a seeker as a God-fearer, one who had not come to know Christ as Savior when Luke addresses the gospel to him. And that is because he calls him the most excellent Theophilus. There's no evidence in the first two centuries of church history that any Christian referred to any other Christian by a title other than their first name. When you get to the book of Acts, Theophilus is no longer the most excellent Theophilus, but just Theophilus. We can't know. It's kind of intriguing, but maybe he just lost his job. We don't know what the what the situation is, but it is an intriguing possibility. At any rate, whatever the case might be about his particular conversion, this book obviously brings Jesus to us and points to him as the Savior of the Gentiles as well as the Jews. The date of the book is perhaps 60 A.D., perhaps a little bit later. It could have even been a little bit earlier, but... Most likely between 60 and 62 AD. Where does that put us? About uh, three decades after the death of Jesus and probably just before Paul's martyrdom at Rome. Again, we mentioned that Luke seems to sort of vanish from the scene after Paul's final imprisonment. We have no idea what happened to him, but the book was probably written about then. Now, there are those who want to put the date much later, so be cautious if you're ever reading If you see a later date into the 70s, uh, but particularly if they're into the 80s, the reason for that is they're troubled by some of the prophecies in Luke. How could, and why do they put it at 80, or why do they put it past 70? Jesus' predictions of the fall of Jerusalem could not be true predictive prophecy, so Luke must have written after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and so they put the date later. But there's no historical evidence that he lived after the fall of Jerusalem. That's a presupposed problem, problem uh, or an agenda that those uh, who put a later date are really, I believe, following. So around the time of Paul's death, prior to the fall of Jerusalem, he writes this book. What is the purpose for it? The purpose of this book, we have to kind of piece together as we read the book, and so we're guessing a little bit here, but let me just offer a few ideas First of all, Luke writes to declare to Theophilus and all his readers who Jesus is, why Jesus came, what he did, and all of this with a view to seeing the reader respond. He seeks to demonstrate that Jesus was sent purposefully by God. God is the agent who sent, or Jesus is the agent sent by God to reveal God to man and to form a new people delivered from sin, empowered by the Holy Spirit to take on Jesus' mission on this earth. Jesus' people are to repent of their sin, to follow Him at any cost, to serve His purposes as a diverse and yet unified community. I. Howard Marshall says, Of all the evangelists, Luke is the most conscious of writing as a historian, Yet throughout his work, the history is the vehicle of theological interpretation in which the significance of Jesus is expressed. Let me walk you through then very quickly an overview of the structure of the book. You notice in verses 1 through 4 that we have this introduction again. And then at verse 5, you see that it breaks very clearly into a different discussion. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah. What we have here, if you wanna page through, or just watch here on the overhead, but we have uh, verses, uh, verse five of chapter one through chapter 252, we have the life of Jesus Christ, his conception, birth, and boyhood. At chapter three and verse one through 413, we have his preparation for and qualifications of Jesus as Messiah, His uh, preparing him for the nation to receive his qualifications through his genealogy and his temptation. Then at chapter four and verse 14 through 950, we have a very distinct section of the book. Here Jesus is presented as the Christ of power and of glory. He is performing many miracles in this section. His power over nature and demons and disease and death is highlighted. It appears that Luke's intention in this section is to show us clearly who Jesus is. He is God's anointed son. This is a man, but this is no normal man. This is the one sent from God with power over all things. Up to chapter 9 in verse 50. Then if you'd like to notice 9 in verse 51, we have here again a major break. And really all of the commentators are in agreement here at this break. Verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. We enter on to what is a very unique section in Luke over against the other writers, Matthew and Mark, 951 to 1944. This major section is what I've referred to here as the journey to death at Jerusalem. There's very purposeful statements that are placed throughout this account that point to the idea that Luke wants us to perceive Jesus as headed to his final destiny at the city, Jerusalem. So in contrast with the previous section, there is much less emphasis here now on miracle. Luke seems to establish for us, here is Christ the miracle worker, the the man of power, the son of God that has come as an agent of God, but now he wants to show us particularly Jesus the man. He emphasizes in this section the stories of people and parables, the teachings of Jesus braided together to show us the wonder of this incomparable man. You can't really say that stories predominate or that teachings predominate. They're all kind of fit together to help us see him, to see who he was as a man. This is a profoundly important section of scripture for us, yielding some of the accounts of Christ, some of the accounts of Christ's ministry found only here. We have only in the writings of Luke, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the rich man and Lazarus, Zacchaeus' conversion, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, and a whole litany of other sections uh, or uh, 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 scenes and teachings that are found nowhere else. This entire section highlights the greatness of Jesus the man. But hanging as a pall over this section are the repetitive references here in 9.51, 13.22, and and 33. These repetitive references in 17 and 18. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. That's his destiny. In this section, then, there's a special emphasis on tough-minded discipleship and the opposition that Jesus steadily faces. At 1945, we entered then upon, if we might call this a last section of Jesus in Jerusalem, his final days there, his last teachings, his opposition, his trial, and then in 24, the resurrection and ascension of Christ. So That's where Luke is headed and might give us just a little sense in this overview of what he is striving to accomplish in this gospel. There are very special themes that play out throughout the gospel. First of all, Jesus came in time and space to save all people according to God's plan. We need to continue to see this connection to God's providential plan, to His sovereign ordaining purposes in the book of Luke. As one commentator puts it, this is a book about outsiders who are made to be insiders. God sent Jesus to win the lost. Jesus has come to make outsiders insiders. There's an emphasis in Luke like no other writer upon Gentiles, upon women, upon outcasts, upon the poor... He is saying that Christ came to save mankind. And Jesus is the quintessential man who has come to save them. In all of this, Jerusalem plays this important role. For here is the scene of ultimate sacrifice and victory over the grave. Here on the spot of earth that God marked out in Genesis chapter 10 will play out the story of redemption. Here we see Luke 19.10, that Jesus came to win the lost. And this is a story of that saving grace. Luke tells how Jesus historically died to provide salvation, how he rose from the dead to bestow that salvation, and how he will return again to establish his reign and kingdom over all creation. It is a story of salvation from beginning to end. Secondly, there is a great emphasis here, and I'll plow through these more quickly, but of prayer and praise. Luke records more about prayer and praise than any of the other Gospels. He records more about the Holy Spirit, and that, of course, leads us where? That leads us into the book of Acts and the strong emphasis upon the Spirit's work there. All of that is here in seed form in the Gospel. There's a strong emphasis upon divine destiny. Again, going back to the point that God has a plan and a purpose and that Jesus is fulfilling that purpose throughout his life. There's an emphasis on prophecy that the Gentiles will be part of God's plan and promise to Abraham. And then there is finally an emphasis on suffering, the suffering of God's people at the hands of a hostile world. To follow Christ is a type of death, a death to self-interest and self-promotion and an embrace of God. But the Holy Spirit empowers our obedience to Jesus, and this Luke continues to bring to our attention. All right, let's go back then with that overview of the book and that setting. We have Luke, the author, Theophilus, the recipient, the basic structure of the book and some of the purposes. We'll develop those throughout the series, Lord willing, but let's look now at these first four verses again and pick them apart for just a few moments here together. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Let me stop here, a little commercial break, but uh, take a deep breath as we delve back in here and say, we have to come to terms with what's here, because our faith rests on words. We didn't see Jesus. We didn't touch him. But we have these words, these accounts, And we have this description of how they had been put together. And if if somebody came to you and brought uh, the story of the little red hen and said, build your life on this, I think you'd want to find out if that was really true. It's a nice little parable, but who wrote it? Did it have meaning? What's the point of it? We are building and staking our life through faith on the life and the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. It is important that we see if what we believe is true and if it is grounded. It is, says Luke, and he does all that he can to make that very clear in this very profound statement. Many, he says, have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Many. In Luke's day, many of Christ's followers had apparently put forth the effort to record orderly narrative accounts of Christ's life. We don't have all of those records. We don't know how many many is but there were those who had done so. So Luke sees his book as just being one of those. He uh, is drawing from these eyewitness accounts, recording historical events that people, in fact, saw. Accounts, that is, of, quote, the things that have been fulfilled among us. What does he mean by that? These things, these historical events of Christ's life, they have been fulfilled among us, apparently the believing community. The us, including Theophilus if he is saved, or calling Theophilus to join if he is not. But these things have been fulfilled among us. Do you see there, as I mentioned, we have to keep watching for the place of God and divine destiny. They, ha- they did not simply happen. These are things that have been fulfilled. These are things that were on God's script from the moment that he said, let there be light, and there was light. This is God's plan. This is God's fulfillment. These things have been fulfilled among us according to God's sovereign plan. And there are people who have written down accounts of what took place. Who are those people? Verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. They were handed down. That is, these writings, these things handed down. They were handed down to us and that phrase handed down is a technical term meaning with great precision and care. They were handed down as authoritative teaching. Now what do we need to do in our culture if we need something to be documented and sure and authoritative? It needs to be somehow hovered over by a lawyer, right? There's gotta be some type of money that passes hands and a stamp that's put on the document and it has to be on file and it's secured and they say legally this stands put. That's this world. That's what's going on here in this time. The ancient peoples knew how to hand down accurate historical information. It was a way of life for many in those times. And with great care and great precision, they handed down these facts about Jesus as eyewitnesses of what happened as, as servants of the Word. Whether these are two sets of people, the eyewitnesses and servants, I don't know if it's real necessary to divide the two, but we do have two ideas. First, they are eyewitnesses. That is, these were people who saw Jesus. Did Luke see Jesus? I'm getting my information from those who saw Jesus. Do you think Luke is taking these facts and playing fast and loose with them and inventing a Jesus on his own? He's saying, I've got my information from the people who saw him, and those people can critique what Luke is saying. With great care, they have in a technical sense of the term handed down this information to me. I have taken this information and I am now writing an account with all of their observing eyes to bring together these facts about the life of Christ and to present to you an accurate document. And that is his burden there at verse 3. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me also, to also to me, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He is one of these who are taking up this very same thing, having carefully investigated. his work. This work puts Luke's reputation on the line as a historian and as a doctor and as a Christian. But I have done my homework, he says. And in the tense of the Greek, he is saying essentially, it's here sitting here on the desk before me. It's done. I put it together, or maybe he's already put it together, and he writes these last four verses later, but he says, I have done my homework. I have carefully investigated these things, and with painstaking detail. This is the meaning of of this Greek phrase. Carefully investigated. I have put it together, and I have the truth what truth that which everything from the beginning that apparently is the beginning of Christ's ministry and it parallels the same from the first in verse 2 these other witnesses and servants from the first and he from the beginning So in other words, they are looking at the life of Christ from beginning to end, and he is putting together all of this information accurately. It reminds me of the words of Peter when he said, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Luke says the same thing. I am not making up stories. With great precision and care, I am investing myself in the careful delineation of the life of Christ. Verse 4, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught, Theophilus. This is his purpose. Why is he going to all this work? Luke's goal is that, as Plummer puts it, Theophilus shall know that the faith he has embraced has an impregnable historical foundation. I want you to know the certainty. I want you to know the truth. The truth that you have been taught, he says here. I don't know that that means that Theophilus had been formally taught the truth of Christ. We don't know for sure, but at any rate, he needs further instruction, and he needs certainty. He needs to be sure that these wonderful truths about Jesus really were, in fact, that did in fact take place. He was acquainted obviously with the life of Christ. Luke wants to solidify what Theophilus had heard by presenting a systematic and carefully researched account of Christ's life. We live in a day when such attention to truth is not so highly regarded. In fact, I don't know if we've ever lived in a day where historical reality is put to the edges for what we want to believe. Revisionist history provides people with money these days when it used to put you in the society as an outcast. Well, we aren't in the context of Luke in these days. We are in the context of days when historical accuracy was of utmost importance. And Luke does everything that he can say to say what I have written here is the truth. As we come to terms with these truths, we have to take what Luke says and run with it or we set it aside. Has he recorded the truth? If he has recorded the truth and Jesus is the Son of God, the ruler of heaven and earth and the savior of the world, we bank on these truths, on these words that God has inspired. Not cleverly devised tales, but the truth that sets us free. This is a story then that must be heard. It is a vision that we must take on. And perhaps that is part of what Paul is saying to Luke and it is certainly what I'd like to leave you with today. That your identity, your hope, your purpose for living, your very life are bound up in your knowledge of Jesus Christ, whom the Gospel writers present with historical precision. Remember what we've been studying the last few weeks? If Christ has not been risen, our hope is in vain. Don't talk to me, said Paul, about some idea of Jesus that's just a story, and we get some kind of spirit from it and some type of aura from it. If Jesus didn't defeat death and resurrection, we have no faith. This is real stuff. And he says that here, your identity is bound up with the historical, true Jesus. Not the Jesus of the historian's making, but the Jesus of reality. That's the Jesus I present to you, Theophilus writes to Luke, and that's the Jesus that Luke presents to us. This is a historical narrative, it's not a fairy tale. And it is certain, and it is an orderly account. Who would ever invent such a tale as this, we might ask to begin with? Is this not an unlikely story? This is the story of a king who was born in a stable. This is the story of a king who has no palace, throne, or domain, and whose only crown was made of thorns and driven into his skull. This is the unlikely story of a flawless judge who suffers capital punishment. This is the story of a national liberator whose people reject him. In fact, the story of the creator of the universe who is beaten and mocked and spit upon and hung on a tree to die. This is the story that the ancient pagans who swirled around Luke and Theophilus, called, to quote one of them, utter trash. That God would suffer is no man's fairy tale. This is the record of Jesus' life through the words of Dr. Luke, words by which God the Father Shows us his son. This is our way in this time of seeing Jesus the man. May God change us as we behold him together. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we come into your presence humbly, and we ask, Lord, that you will guide us into your truth as we look at it in this book of Luke, as you give us life and opportunity. God, we want to see Jesus, and we realize that we have some tremendous challenges before us. First of all, we did not see him in person and did not live with him, but also we've had a couple of thousand years to get used to his story and in our own personal lives, some of us perhaps several decades. But I pray, God, that you will help us to blow away the cobwebs and to blow away the apathy. And I pray that we will, in fact, as you deal with us as a church, look to the life of Jesus Christ and be moved by who he was and who he is. I pray, God, to this end that you will nurture your church and bless us and teach us and guide us into his likeness, I pray please answer this prayer of mine which I trust now is the prayer of your people that you will transform us as we behold the man, Jesus Christ. I pray, dear Father, according to your mercy, if there might be some among us who find no joy in contemplating Christ or have not come to know him, in a personal way that you would draw that individual to yourself and salvation and Lord that through uh, these sermons though our intention is to go from here as those who proclaim the gospel I pray Lord that should it be your grace and should it be your mercy that there may even be some who attend to these sermons that come to know Christ and identify with us as your people we thank you dear father for your mercy and I pray Lord that you will guide us in this endeavor